Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about And welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you are joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation with our guests. But before I do that, I always like to give a little clarification of who we are, because a lot of times we get new listeners. And Alzheimer's Speaks was developed because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years. And so I was really lost. I wanted to know where are the services, products, and tools, where are the other people like my family dealing with this? And so our goal is to really talk to people in the trenches, not be a show about sound bites, but real everyday conversations of what works and what doesn't work and what do we need and how do we adjust throughout this journey uh, to be our best selves and to help those that we are dealing with with dementia, if it's our loved ones or clients, be their best selves. Now, if you like the opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can go ahead and download that on any of your favorite platforms. I do want to give a shout out to Picnic Health. If you haven't heard about them, you can join this important Alzheimer's uh, disease research project in minutes from your home. Just go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks. And when you sign up, you'll actually get $25. Now you're probably wondering what, what the heck is Picnic Health? Well, Picnic Health collects and digitizes all of your medical records onto one online account. And then you can give consent to share that anonymized data um, with medical researchers. You see, by examining real world files from medical records, researchers can find information that they may never know of when they're doing their clinical trials. So that know that there's a real important data in there and every person's healthcare journey is different. So feel free to share your story. And if you care for someone with Alzheimer's disease, you can sign them up as well, as long as you've got legal authority to do that and can manage their health records. Again, just go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks and pick up your $25. Now, other resources, and this is dear to my heart, I want you to check out Dementia Map. Dementia Map is a free online resource directory. We have about 150 categories 
We're growing it slowly because we want to make sure that the people in it are going to be responsive to you. And that is a huge, huge, important feature. You also don't have to sign up and have an account. So you don't have to give any personal data away. You don't have to worry about having to remember another password or being hacked or scammed. You can just uh, go to DementiaMap.com, check it out. Uh, there's uh, terminology, which a lot of times, you know, I know I sure didn't know what I didn't know um, when the disease knocked at our door. There's uh, some great blogs. Uh, there's an events calendar and just so many wonderful supports out there that, uh, especially during COVID, that you can tap into from home or if someone's living in a community as well. And if you are a person that has a service product or tool, you can sign up for our free listing. Or if you want a little more enhanced listing, you can, which will give you a lot more marketing bang for your buck, you can do that as well. Feel free to reach out to me. I'd be more than glad to give you a tour. Last, I want to just shout out to two support groups that I think are really important. One is Arthur's Memory Cafe. We do that the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month. And that's at one o'clock central time. So two Eastern noon mountain time and 11 a.m. Pacific time. Again, we do do that virtually, but you are more than welcome. And if you're here in Minnesota, you can join the Caregiver Connect, which is an in-person support group sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks. And we meet the last Wednesday of each month at the Shoreview Community Center. You can register for that at 763-913. 6140 or just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com and I can get you information on anything that that we just talked about. We're going to hear from the Footbar Walker and we're going to be right back. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, as I said, I am really excited to have these two women with us today. We're going to have an exceptional conversation. So let me get on and just introduce you to them. First, I want to introduce you to Valene Campbell. She is the manager and the founder and director of Revita Health Inc., which is a home healthcare agency that provides in-home personal support for all ages across the greater Toronto area. Uh, Valine is also a children's book author on diverse literature and Alzheimer's disease and advocacy. So welcome, Valine. It's just such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Lori. It was so good to be here with you. Yeah, I am. I am thrilled. We had a chance to 
talk a little bit before we set this up. And I was just so impressed with your work. And so I can't wait to share it with our audience. So thank you for taking the time today. Now, we also have the honor of having Dr. Sharon Cohen with us, who is a neurologist specializing in Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, care, and research. And she's the medical director of the Toronto Memory Program. So welcome, Dr. Cohen. How are you today? Thank you, Laura. I'm fine. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you. Well, I I always love talking about getting diagnosed because I know so many families struggle. And to this day, I still hear people say, gosh, it took two years, it took three years. And I know it's a complicated deal, you know, to try to sort out, you know, that big cobweb of what it could be. But before I get into my line of questions, I always like to ask my guests first, if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own circle or family or friends. And so Valine, I'm going to go to you first. And if you wouldn't mind sharing. Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking. Um, yes, what a question. You know, it's I, I never realize how much I am still impacted because I don't have many opportunities to actually speak about it. Um, my mom has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia and uh, it hit us really, really hard. She has always been a very vibrant person, one who dresses to the nine. She would always take really good care of herself, very bubbly personality. And, um, you know, when I first noticed changes, we were actually on vacation. Uh, We went to the UK for my birthday and it was her aunt's birthday. And that was my first time spending an an abundance of time with her because of course I didn't live with her at the time. And uh, I just noticed that she was moving in different directions from the crowd, very forgetful. Um, I noticed perhaps just not clear thought and, and, and clear communication at times. And um, it just made me puzzled, you know, and I spoke with her and I spoke with my family and we called even from there. And I said, have you noticed anything? I spoke to my father and my sister and they're like, well, you know, I think it's one of those things too. You're in denial. You just think, oh, it just may be a phase. But um, to answer your question, yes, I am impacted. My family's impacted with dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's just nice for the audience to kind of get a little bit of background. How about you, Dr. Cohen? Have you been touched personally? Absolutely, Laurie. I think so many of us have. And even though I'm known as a neurologist, a dementia specialist, and the vast majority of the people I I'm involved with our patients, other people's family members, loved members. Uh, I myself lost both my mom and my dad to Alzheimer's disease. And I looked after them for many years before their demise. And before them, uh, both of my grandmothers had this disease. So very common disease. I've seen it close up. I know it well. And uh, I'm on a mission for people to do better, for science to step up and for us to have uh, more timely diagnosis and better treatment options. Yeah. Wow. Um, for both of your parents and, and then grandparents, um, that's a lot in the family. You know, one of the things that I hear so often from people is they said, yeah, you know, they say it's not hereditary, but you know, they look back at their, their family line and say, we're seeing a lot of similarities, but they called it different things over the years. And so it was harder to track. So hopefully we'll be doing better job with that, you know, moving forward, uh, because that is um, 
such a concern of so many people. That's way up on the list of what they worry about, um, which is kind of amazing. And all the things you can worry about in today's age <laughs> that, that mm-hmm. dementia is, is as high up as it is. Um, Valine, I'm going to start with you. And I want to ask you, you know, you're writing a children's book about Alzheimer's disease. Why don't you share what the title is and what made you decide that was a prime market to hit? Sure. Uh, this is called The Amazing Zoe and Grandma's Memory Box. It's part of a series. And um, there's there's a story behind how I got to this story. <laughs> so what that means is um, I had my daughter... Uh, middle of the middle of 2019 and of course with that friends and family are just so lovely you know you receive tons of gifts and shower presents and books and so on and uh as time went on when i finally had her i was going through her library and i noticed that um there are a lot of books that the books that she had they did not represent her uh none of the lead characters looked like my daughter or myself and you know, sometimes you don't think about that impact in children's literature unless you need to have a direct connection to the literature there. And uh, I was on maternity leave and I thought, you know what, this would be a great opportunity to start sharing stories. And my daughter's name is Zuri. This character's name is Zoe. So I made it a little close. I just felt if she grows up, she might not want to hear mom talking about her all the time. So I said, (laughs) let me just put it, you know, make it a little close. So the book actually had two things, um, I guess, two main objectives. One was, of course, to fill the need of diverse books in children's literature, but also because of the impact of Alzheimer's disease in my family, I thought it would be a great way to capture the relationship that my daughter has with my mom at this time, while mom is still able to to connect with with my daughter and still recognize who she is, I could capture who they are in this time and also share what the message is of Alzheimer's disease to children. Well, you know, I I think it's so important for our literature to be diverse, for people to relate. And uh, so kudos to you for doing that and kudos for taking on this topic too, because it's important. And you know, storytelling is just such a beautiful process and such a wonderful way to learn and to teach others in terms of sharing story, how powerful it can be. I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't know that much. And it's like, you always have to know, you know, more than somebody else. And you're always going to know less than someone else. Yes. That's, yes. that's just life that you're, yeah. you're always going to be positioned in the middle, but that that doesn't mean you can't help others through what you've learned. So I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. What kind of significance does Zoe have in, in all of the, the storylines that you're writing, you know, with her presence in there? How does, you know, I've seen various children's books and there's not a lot on this topic for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, what's your, what's your goal with Zoe? What, what that's is she going to teach everybody? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, Zoe exists in all places and spaces. That's one thing that I really, really want to let people understand. Uh, Representation is something in a conversation that we've been having over the past couple of years, but it's so important to see a character 
uh, go through every day, a character of color go through every day. We don't want to always focus on the trauma that is often spoken of in, especially in the Black community or in any marginalized community. I just want Zoe to exist as a little girl and other boys and girls can see her have everyday problems. She's a very curious character. She, she tends to um, ask a lot of questions. She wants to try to figure uh, things out and try to come to a solution. But at the same time, as she's learning, the young reader who reads the book is also learning at the same time. So that's really what she does. She touch, touches on real life topics. Well, one of the things I love about children's books is that not only do they teach children, but I think they are very powerful in teaching adults because many times we're the ones reading yeah. and just their innocent comments and statements are like, oh, that's not how I would have handled that. But then, and then people kind of go inside and go, but that's a much better way to deal with the situation yeah. because they haven't been taught standards of right or wrong or perceptions and, right. and all of those things. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, um, it helps make the conversation easier for the parent or the teacher as well, right? Just as you're saying, sometimes mm -hmm. you're stumped on these hard questions. These kids come with questions from anywhere. And like you said, you get yep. stuck. <laughs> yeah. But why? But why? You know, you, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it's good. And then, you know, it's I think it's real easy too for adults without even knowing that they're doing it asking little questions like, how would you react to that? What if your friend did that? You know, um, I, I think those are really subtle, powerful questions that, that people can um, add to a story to have a conversation afterwards and, and to let that little one run around and, and tell the next person what they just learned or about that story. Um, you know, those are those, those kind of um, heartfelt moments that I think really set in and adults listen, um, yes. where, you know, sometimes we, eh, you know, not right now <laughs> type thing on that. So, um, I know, you know, you've been touched in your family by Alzheimer's, um, disease, needless to say, why did you think this was such an important topic for, for kids? That's a great question as well. Um, <clears throat> well, I know Dr. Sharon will be able to speak to this uh, a little later, Dr. Cohn rather, but um, I know the prevalence, you know, research is out there. The prevalence of Alzheimer's disease nationally, internationally, it's very high up in the list as being the cause of um, one of the main causes of morbidity for adults over the age of 65. So I thought to myself, what that means is if we're looking at the age of 65 and over, they're typically grandparents. They're typically grandparents in that age frame. And then of course, grandparents have grandchildren and grandchildren tend to have a very connected relationship, very unique relationship with their grandparents. So I thought if grandma and grandpa are affected, that means grandchild will need to understand why is grandma and grandpa changing? Why are they not remembering who I am? Why are they asking me the same things over and over again? So I really saw it as an educational opportunity for, for children, especially those who can relate and having those close-knit relationships with a grandparent. I like that. And, you know, I also think from research and 
and just communities. So much of it is, you know, the Caucasian communities. And, you know, we want to expand this group. And yet, you know, how do we draw people in and and kids are a great draw, a great draw to kind of get those you know, get those fears put aside and to be able to have a conversation. Uh, Cause this is, I, I mean, you guys are much more likely to get the disease, you know, than, than many other cultures. And that's an important factor that mm-hmm. needs to be talked about. And I know so many families like eh, it's no one else's business. We're just going to take care of it here. And um, you know, don't want to have that conversation. And, and also, I know when I went in um, teaching in the schools and stuff about uh, dementia, I was shocked Mm -hmm. how many, and this was, uh, this was older kids. So this was like junior high and high school. I was shocked how many were caring for a parent or a relative or a neighbor and they needed to come home from school and maybe they couldn't do sports and they saw all the dynamics change, but no one had a conversation about why. Yeah. What was really going on. So, you know, I love starting early, you know, with having this conversation with our little ones. Um, And hopefully that will change because our our teenagers are really struggling of why aren't I so important anymore? (laughs) You know, all the priorities in the house have changed. And that is just a critical, critical piece. In terms of, you know, marginalized communities being affected, you know, I I just kind of um, brought this topic up a little bit, but how do you think your your book will will help with that in the work that you do? Yes, um, I think um, it'll really start opening the dialogue about the disease itself. Uh, traditionally speaking, there are a lot of families that do not discuss uh, mental health in mm-hmm. my community as a Black woman. Mm-hmm. It's just a topic that still has a lot of stigma around it. And um, sometimes there's just miseducation around it. Um, there's a kind of thought process, not only from my community, but I think I think there's stigma still around mental health completely. But um, when it comes to dementia specifically, it tends to be a thought of this is the natural progression of life. And um, sometimes a lot of people just kind of throw it off and say, hey, you know, auntie, your uncle, they're old, that's just what it is. But uh, again, I'm gonna leave that part to Dr. Cohen to speak about, but in the sense of the importance of getting the message out in uh, the black community specifically, um, I just wanna remove the stigma. I want um, the community to also understand the, the assistance that's available and also understand the importance of participating, again, this is Dr. Cohen, but participating in clinical trials. So that way we have a better understanding about how the community is affected, why we're affected, and uh, the proper resources that are out there to help support the Black community as well. Fantastic. What is the, the one thing that you want families to know um, and walk away with after reading the book? What do you what do you want to really sink home with them? I want families to look at the book and understand this is a human story. It's not a black, white, you know, Asian story. It's for everyone because uh, Alzheimer's disease affects all communities. Yes, 
Uh, there are some communities that have the disease more prevalent in certain communities, but the story is for everyone, for all children who have a loved one who's living with Alzheimer's disease. It helps explain Alzheimer's disease in a very simple way for children to understand. And also that even though it is a progressive disease. I mean, we understand there's not a necessary, necessary happy ending, but at least uh, children will understand that they are supported, they're not alone, and that they will be able to still live out the days with their grandma and grandpa in a positive way. Yeah, I guess I, I would like to add, and I, I hope people take away too, mm -hmm. is that children can participate in really bringing joy and bringing yeah. peace, everyone at every level can change outcomes and can build relationships at different levels. And I know my mom, you know, as I mentioned uh, before we came online, my mom lived with the disease for 30 years. And the last mm. three to four, she really was pretty non-communicative altogether. And we do her birthday parties and we get in the, the big party room and the kids would be playing under the table. My mom would be sleeping and my mom would Every single time, every single time before those kids crawled out from under the table, she would wake up and she would giggle like three seconds before they came out. They were so connected and there was so, and then she would giggle and then she'd fall back asleep again. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot. And, and I love that the book is towards kids. I, I love the simplicity because I think one of the scariest things with this disease is it has been projected as extremely complicated. And when it's complicated, people think they can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that people can do to change the you know, trajectory of this disease by just engaging and yeah. um, you know, maintaining those relationships, still being able to laugh and hug. And even when the person can't hug you back or yeah. sitting next to them, being in their presence, you know, those are... Those are the connections that I think um, so often people give over to the disease thinking, well, it, it isn't, it isn't going to help, right. but it, right. but it does. I, I, I'm a firm believer it does anyways. Well, why don't you tell us how you and Dr. Cohen met? And then I'm going to ask her a few questions. Yeah. So uh, the original introduction came through Revita Health. At the time, I was doing interviews with other healthcare professionals who are able to uh, offer information to the community. I mean, they always do, but I just wanted to make it seen to community members that we are accessible and perhaps just offer a little bit of different educational elements to them outside of them going to the office, right? So uh, that's how I initially met with Dr. Cohen. Okay. And then afterwards, I'm sorry, how could I forget? Uh, she wrote the beautiful foreword to this book, uh, The Amazing Zoe and Grandma's Memory Box. It's such a beautiful, heartfelt forward. And I'm always so grateful for her time and her care in putting that together for me. Oh, how sweet. That's, yeah. that'll be, that'll be a bond that'll never go away. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. that's important. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, Dr. Cohen, I want to talk, you know, people are always talking about how can I be proactive? What do I do about my brain health? 
how do I adopt a healthy lifestyle? You know, how much work is it going to be? What's it going to cost me? I mean, right away, people kind of spin on all the excuses of how, how I can't do this. So why don't you just lay it out for us on what people can do? Okay, sure. Well, the good thing is there's lots that one can do and you have a lot of choice. You can pick and choose and nobody should feel overwhelmed by all the things that they must do. These are fun things to do to look after yourself. So, um, and, and I should say that the earlier one starts, the better. So waiting until one develops dementia uh, while lifestyle strategies can, can ease the strain it's unlikely to reverse brain damage. So for people who are really prevention minded, you know, even uh, in young adult years or middle, middle years, um, leading a uh, physically active life is important. So let's say physical activity and you don't have to run a marathon. You can dance, you can garden, you can stretch, you can do the exercise that you like. Walking is good exercise when it comes to brain health. And it's not just about making the heart muscle healthy and pumping more blood to the brain. That's not really the story here with, with the exercise and brain health. It's more about stimulating chemicals in the brain that build more brain cells and repair brain cells. And that, that's uh, an understanding that we've come to in the last few years that's so important. So, you know, if you enjoy sports or enjoy a workout or even just a walk, you know, a few times a week, uh, you are doing good, not just for your body, but for the brain. The other aspect that we talk a lot about is staying cognitively engaged. Some people talk about mental stimulation. To me, that sounds like a passive kind of thing that somebody's throwing information or stimuli at you. I don't really like that. Being cognitively engaged means you're using your brain and you're using it for a whole host of things. And, and that can be you know, um, communicating with people, um, reading, doing crosswords, doing Sudoku. Those are some of the common things that are touted, but it can be a whole host of things with travel. You know, you've got a different routine, a different schedule, a change of currency, your problem solving. So really anything that keeps you interested and engaged, that shouldn't be punishing. People shouldn't be doing crosswords if they don't like crosswords. If you like them, take them to the next level. So you're trying to keep up the challenge, but keep it within the realm of things you enjoy. Um, and then, uh, sleep, restorative sleep is important. So quantity and quality of sleep. And for some people that comes easily. And for some of us not, but one should not feel that there's any great, uh, you know, badge of honor to cheating sleep. Medical practitioners are very notorious medical residents for, you know, running cardiac arrest in the middle of the night. Well, that's not actually good for us, but we do it. <laughs> and other, other, you know, walks of life, people cheat sleep. There's no shame in getting the kind of sleep that your body needs. Most of us need seven and a half hours. If you don't need longer, don't force yourself to sleep longer. And, and some of us are blessed with only needing five and a half hours. That's great. But the average is seven and a half hours sleep. And if we're always waking up to an alarm clock and our sleep would normally run longer, we should try at least on weekends or holidays to get that extra sleep. So some of these things are, you know, are enjoyable things and we just shouldn't feel guilty if we sleep in now and then. When it comes to diet, uh, a dietary pattern 
that is healthy for the brain is very similar to the heart healthy diet. And these fad diets or high vitamin supplement diets are not actually shown to be helpful. And sometimes they can be damaging or the ketogenic diet, you know, people tend to lose a lot of weight and feel ill on these diets and don't stick with them. You want a balanced diet that is somewhat low in animal fat and low in red meat. So you know, say that to our North American audience, we all like our steak and potatoes. It sounds like, well, you know, I can't, I have a hot dog. Well, yes, you can, <laughs> but just not every day, right? So try and build in a little bit more fish, a little bit more po poultry and lots of fruit and vegetables. And, you know, there used to be this blueberry fad, that's good, antioxidants, good for your brain. It can be any, uh, you know, it can be raspberries, it can be blueberries, it can be strawberries. Go with what you like, you know, make it fun to eat food, but be mindful, not too much sugar, not too much fat um, and not too much red meat. And then then you are really following a brain healthy diet. And, and the thing about dietary pattern is every day, three times, five times a day, you get to make choices and make good ones that that, you know, uh, not only make you feel well nourished and happy, but are good for your brain and your body. So those are some of the things that we all should be doing. And we should be teaching our kids as well, because a lot of the habits that we learn start when we're little. And if we see our parents modeling, you know, good dietary patterns or good exercise patterns or being cognitively engaged, whatever it is they love to do, that trickles down to next generations as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I love the way that you phrased everything because fun came first, you know, yeah. make sure it's enjoyable and uh, because nothing's going to last if we hate it, if it's just drudgery and you're just like beating yourself up the whole time and, you know, highlighting that there's such a variety of things that you can do. I think so often people get so regimented about it. it's got to be this and it's got to be this long and I got to do it at this time. And um, it, that makes a, a big difference. I, I also liked when you were talked about um, cognitive engagement. I personally think my mom lived that long because she was socially engaged. She felt part of the community, you know, where she, she lived in a nursing home for 14 years, which is a very unusual stay. Um, but I think she lasted because she was connected. She knew people, they knew her. Um, and she, she felt like a whole person and she was still participating in life. And, and I think, I think sometimes people forget the simple things that we can do by having a conversation or inviting somebody along just by being inclusive, mm -hmm. um, how important that could be in, in going for a walk, you know, you can, or maybe you're going out to eat to a, you know, a place and, and going to eat more healthy. I mean, there's lots of different things or, playing cards or whatever it might be, depending on what stage, you know, somebody is in or even playing a game where maybe they can't participate, but you, they can play as a team, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so often I think that gets brushed off. Well, they can't play. Well, yeah, they can't. Yeah, no. can. You're so right. You're so right. Modifying an activity that's enjoyable, you can keep it enjoyable. And the social interaction really does nourish people and the use of language. I mean, even if, the individual with Alzheimer's disease is losing some of their language skills. It's not all or nothing. And in terms of them understanding and even understanding communication beyond words, you know, facial expression and gesture, it's very rich what we do. We take it for granted, but it's, it's, it's complex and beautiful and we should, we should keep it going. Well, and you know, when you mentioned words, you know, three quarters of our communication is nonverbal. 
And yet people are still demanding those words come out. And what I have found, and I'd love to hear from you as a, as a doctor, but what I see is, and what I hear from people with dementia is they say their other senses have increased. So they, they're much more in cue looking at our nonverbals and they want to be able to be seated where they can see everybody's lips because they're like, I didn't know I lip read, you know, but I, but I do lip read. I'm, I'm looking at the facial expressions to kind of get the whole thing. If I can't catch all of the words, they're still able to track what's going on or what the, the sense or the feeling is, um, you know, with these people. And, you know, by positioning them um, maybe at the end of the table instead of the beginning of the table, they don't get as much side noise you know, as they would in the middle, and they're able to see more people. I mean, all of those are little teeny things that can help them um, process all that we are, that we are translating between one another that we just take for granted. I mean, most people don't realize that they're reading a person's nonverbals. Um, and they're just so powerful, you know, unless they don't like them and it's your, and it's your kid, mom, I saw you roll your eyes, or I heard that, oh, that deep breath, you know, <laughs> then they'll call you out on it. But, you know, for the most part, people just really kind of take that stuff for granted. So um, thank you for, for talking about that. Oh, that's great. No, it's beautiful what you're saying, you know, take that person who has some limitations with cognition, put them at the center of the table, make sure everybody speaks directly to them. And, and uh, it will make a big difference rather yep. than ignore conversing because people feel, oh, well, we don't know how to talk to this person. They're not the same. They won't remember that. Forget about that. Yes. I can treat them yeah. as if they're very but, much there, which they are. Yeah, I can, I can see that even with uh, my mother. Um, I noticed uh, when we're not engaging, if say it's something that we feel, okay, maybe mom won't be able to understand in that moment. Um, I noticed that she is very uncomfortable. She doesn't like that. She wants to, even if she doesn't really grasp the conversation at the time, but it's still eye contact. Hi, mom, this is what we're talking about. So she feels like she's a part of it. So I could definitely speak to what both of you are saying. Yeah. And that goes not just within family and friends, but yeah. you know, when we're out in the community, if we're at a restaurant, if we're a bank, if we're meeting with the attorneys, they still want to be part, even if they yeah. know that their answer, uh, they're not either going to be able to answer, or maybe their, their answer isn't going to um, be listened to real closely, maybe if it's illegal terms and things like that, they still want to be recognized and valued as a human being, just like we all do. Yeah, sure. you know? And it's just a matter of respect. But we've lost a lot of that in the country here lately. So um, I, I kind of have this belief that dementia is here to teach us to get back to basics about being respectful and be accepting that we're all different, um, yet we can all live together. Um, in a beautiful fashion, just honor one another and, and what our needs are. Cause we all have needs, even if we want to hide them and put on our Stepford wives smile and say, I, I got it handled. We don't, you know, we, we go out to our car and scream or, you know, whatever, or we're nervous wreck inside those things show no matter how hard we try to hide them. So now one of the concerns and, and Valine, I think you mentioned it earlier about you know, sometimes people would just want to be in denial, you know, like, eh, this really isn't happening, or it's not that serious. But my guess is, uh, Dr. Cohen, that you think don't ignore symptoms, you know, get in, get them checked out. Is that correct? 
I do believe that uh, very strongly. And um, don't ignore really applies to not just the patient who's having memory problems or the family who might be noticing them, but also to the physicians. You know, yeah. family physicians are very busy people. They are tasked with a lot of responsibilities. But when it comes to memory problems, they're inclined, unfortunately, to brush them aside, maybe feeling they don't have the time or skill to delve, or maybe because of this sort of sense of nihilism, you know, there's not much we can do. And what do you expect for being 85? And you're not too bad, um, you know, and, and so at that level, even when somebody does say, mm, something's wrong with my memory, I'm going to get it checked out, they hit a roadblock. So there are so many levels of don't ignore. And then for the person, him or herself, who is developing memory problems, these problems, especially in a disease like Alzheimer's disease, come up so subtly and gradually in the beginning that it's very hard to put one's finger on when things actually began changing. And then for the person who is having the problem, they may not be insightful as part of the disease itself. That part of the brain that allows you to reflect on how you're doing may not be working. So this is not necessarily denial in a psychiatric sense, like, oh, I can't face this. This mm -hmm. is, I don't see it. And so we, it really is a responsibility of family and close friends to say, hey, I think something's going on. Can we get this checked out? It can be very awkward when, you know, somebody doesn't feel there's anything wrong and you're saying, mm, I think there is a problem. But then even for those who are insightful, there's a lot of stigma and Belene mentioned that. And, and so people may be aware they're changing and there's a problem, but the idea of of going and having a label put on it or being told they can't drive or, you know, worrying then about um, the burden they're going to place on the family. You know, you get into so many fears that are understandable. And yet, number one, it's not all Alzheimer's. Better to get it checked out. Maybe it's a side effect from a medicine. Maybe it's sleep apnea. Maybe it's a whole host of other things that we can do something about. So don't ignore it. And number two, if it is this bad disease, Alzheimer's, it's still better to get a label on it, get past the diagnosis and get on with the business of, of coping and living well and being educated and accessing services. And Valine mentioned clinical trials. I mean, there's so many ways in which having a diagnosis, tough diagnosis, still opens the door to doing something about it. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. And one of the things I'll just give a plug for dementia mentors, you know, if people, I don't know if you two are familiar with that, but dementia mentors is a group of people with dementia that mentors people newly diagnosed because none of us know really what it feels like and looks like for people to look at us different, treat us different and kind of be on the outskirts of their own life, trying to figure out how, how am I going to how am I going to move forward? And it's really fun to see the mentees um, grow and become mentors and, and have a purpose and, and become true advocates. So uh, DementiaMentors.org is a, is a wonderful, wonderful resource. Let's talk about advances. Have there been advances? I mean, I know there's the big scandal over the new medication that's $56,000. You know, I mean, everyone knows that one. You know, what do you think about, what do you think about that and other things that are out there? Yeah. You know, it is an exciting time in Alzheimer's disease, not because Alzheimer's is an exciting disease, it's a horrible disease, but because we are understanding the disease better than we ever did. It is a complicated disease, but we're understanding it not 
just from the symptom standpoint, but what is going on in the brain about the biology. And very interestingly, this uh, disease starts taking hold for about 20 years before there are symptoms. And so that's a fantastic opportunity for prevention. You know, when you think about detecting cancers early before they've disabled people or disfigured people or affected, uh, you know, people's day-to-day activities, it's the same in Alzheimer's, but it's been such a long time in coming that we actually have tools to diagnose the changes in the brain before they affect day-to-day function. So we have a host of prevention studies going on now internationally, not just in the Toronto Memory Program, uh, designed for people who already have the first changes in the brain, let's say amyloid plaque, which is one of the proteins that accumulates, is present in the brain. We can detect it in life. We're not talking about making a diagnosis post-mortem at autopsy, which was the old way that we had to do things, but with a PET scan or spinal fluid analysis, And if a person has that early brain change, but maybe very, very well, cognitively, completely normal, functioning normally, working, banking, shopping, whatever they're doing, not needing any support, they are the right candidate to try an intervention that would prevent them, hopefully, from ever going on to developing dementia. So that's very hopeful, being able to diagnose early. The other thing that is extremely hopeful is in the drug development pipeline. We talked a little bit about lifestyle strategies to keep the brain healthy. Those are very important. But with this disease, when people develop symptoms, we are going to need medications. It's like, you know, you can't just treat cancer with lifestyle strategies, although they can help prevent some cancers. Once people are symptomatic, what are the right treatments? Well, up until um, the current day, the approved treatments we've had for the last 20 years have a modest benefit to symptoms only and don't get at the underlying early changes in the brain, the amyloid change and another protein called tau and the inflammation in the brain. So in the drug development pipeline, there are over a hundred compounds. I think it's about 130 compounds at different stages of development with different targets. Some are targeting amyloid, some are targeting tau, some are targeting um, uh, innate immunity or inflammation. And we need all of these. If you think of a cancer, a cocktail of chemotherapy, you know, that that's where we need to get and we need precision medicine. So although we haven't cured Alzheimer's yet, we are heading in the right direction with therapies that are showing more and more promise and hopefully with, with pricing that will allow them to be, you know, available to all who would benefit from them. But the idea of treating more than symptoms of slowing down a slowly progressive disease and my goodness, your mom had the disease for 30 years and perhaps was accumulating changes in the brain for 15 years or 20 years before those symptoms. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we want people like your mom to have, the advantage of early treatment. I just yeah. wanted to add to um, uh, Dr. Cohen, you mentioned the amount of time uh, someone can start ha- seeing symptoms and having symptoms of dementia before there's actual an, an actual diagnosis. Um, something came out of that for me. Uh, there was a conversation that you and I had years ago when we first met, but how early some people can actually be diagnosed with uh, dementia. And uh, I remember coming across some literature that spoke to perhaps your early 30s, sorry, late 30s or early 40s. And if we're looking at 
perhaps seeing symptoms so early, that is a parent age who typically would have young children as well. So I just wanted to kind of put that in there also. It's a, it's a great way to start having the conversations, opening the door to conversations for, for parents who are, I guess, the sandwich generation and talking to the younger children about Alzheimer's disease and being open and honest about it because symptoms may be seen not only in parents, but it may be seen in the parent age group as well. So just something that I wanted to add there. Sure, there, you know, there is um, young onset dementia, which yeah. we, um, uh, you know, define as symptom onset before the age of 65. This is a much less common form of dementia or particularly of Alzheimer's disease. So most are in the grandparent age group, however, when they are symptomatic, but um, still there are people who develop symptoms in their fifties, in their forties, in their sixties. Uh, you'll remember the movie Still Alice, uh, who was a Harvard linguist, Julianne Moore played Alice Howland, who was a Harvard linguist diagnosed at age 50. And she was symptomatic with um, a very uh, specific type of Alzheimer's. It was a strongly genetic autosomal dominant gene mutation that caused her Alzheimer's. And that had an impact on her family. It was very realistic the way that film played out with the, the entire family being involved or affected. Yeah, I've, I've talked with a couple of parents whose children have been diagnosed. Um, with dementia too. And people are like, well, no, they can't get it. And I'm like, well, they're out there. There's not a ton of them, but this is a disease that, you know, we don't know enough about. And that's why we need more money. We need more clinical trials. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is how do people find trials? I, I know that, you know, a lot, what I hear from people in support groups and, and gatherings is, they get really frustrated with the trials because they go and they fill everything out and they think they're going to be part of the trial. And then at the last minute, they get they get booted out. And after a while, you know, they just like, we're not going to do this anymore. It's too much time. And, and they build their hope up because, of course, everybody wants the magic bullet. And we don't know if any of these trials are going to be that. Um, but what, what do you suggest for them in terms of of trying to start that process and getting involved um, with trials? Yeah, I think, you know, clinical trials are the hope for the future. Um, and without volunteers in trials, uh, we would have no treatments. The pharmacies would be bare, whether it was treatments for COVID or for diabetes or for hypertension, you know, we can't, there's no way to bypass uh, trying medications in in human beings and in those who are the ones who will hopefully benefit from the medication. The trial process is, uh, is trying, is onerous because we're looking at a relatively narrow slice of the disease, people of a certain age and uh, without other, what we call comorbidities, you know, with diabetes well-controlled, hypertension well-controlled. So a lot of people get excluded and it does seem very unfair. And, you know, how is this going to apply to the real world if a drug's approved? You know, you're going to have to broaden the, the indication. But in order to prove the effect of a medication and not have all these confounding factors, clinical trials have all of these inclusion exclusion criteria. In my experience, and, and I've been involved in clinical trials as a principal investigator for over 30 years, the altruism of, of seniors and others to participate to hopefully benefit themselves, but others, their children, grandchildren, and those that they don't even know is remarkable. 
and we have many trial participants who come regularly to receive some of them intravenous medication every two weeks. Some of them, at, you know, they are tested, they are scanned, they are they give blood samples um, over a prolonged period of time. An average length of trial might be eighteen months, and they are so. Um, what should I say? Uh, invested in the process and honored to pioneer with us. So for most clinical trial participants, this is a very positive experience, but I don't want to in any way minimize what you've said, Lori, that for some, especially those who wanted to get into a trial and didn't have the opportunity, that's very frustrating. Um, find, seeking out clinical trials can be challenging. We try to make it known, you know, to the greater Toronto area or to Ontario, what trials we have available. I think the Alzheimer's Association um, and Alzheimer's Society in Canada can be helpful in directing people to trials. In the U.S., there's a trial match uh, program that can also be helpful. But I think that people should have uh, the opportunity to join trials. It's really a shame when we don't invite people. And I think that's where we can do a lot better with um, uh, ethnic diversity, racial diversity, by making sure we reach out and ask people to join trials. Many people would say, I would have joined, I would have participated if I was asked, but I was never asked. And that is such a shame. Yeah. I yeah. touched on that, uh, Dr. Sharon, because I, I thought to myself as well, um, because I'm also affect my family's affected. I am a woman of color. You know, advocacy is very important for myself as well because I know, again, from the standpoint of my community, my Black community, uh, th there's a mistrust, unfortunately, with the healthcare system. Um, as we can see, even right now, what we're currently going through with COVID-19. I mean, it's a different conversation, but largely in part, marginalized communities are just at a place where they don't trust healthcare um, systems. And um, I just think it's just so important that we continue to have these conversations. As you mentioned, reach out to ethnic um, communities, but also have them start seeing more faces that look like mine in places where we can speak to the importance of, of, of diversity uh, when it comes to learning about dementia and Alzheimer's disease and in your clinical trials. Couldn't agree more. Very important. And we'll get there. I'm, yeah. I'm very hopeful that enough noise is being made about this topic and the importance. And, you know, when, when manufacturers or sponsors of trials read out their results and their baseline characteristics involved, you know, 95% of the cohort being white, we're all looking at that saying, that's not okay. You know, yeah. why wasn't that trial more diverse? Mm -hmm. We weren't having that conversation to the same extent a few years back. So I think the message is starting to ring very loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the other thing that I've seen a change in, and this is something that I would hear from the dementia community is, why is it always about Alzheimer's disease? I've got Lewy body, I've got frontal temporal, I've got vascular, what about us, you know, and those are just a handful of the different types of dementias, but it seems like there's a little greater sprawl in terms of interest. And the other thing that I like that, I, that I've noticed too, is there seems to be more uh, more seriousness taken to social engagement and how does that affect people living with the disease granted it's not a cure but it might be able to to um, help help offset some symptoms for a while and, and so many people say that when they feel valued and purposeful and engaged 
um, you know, people look at them and go, well, you know, you're doing really good compared to so-and-so and so-and-so. And they kind of compare and they said, it's because I have purpose. And many say they never had a purpose at this level until they were diagnosed. And so many, many, even though they wouldn't wish this disease on anybody, say it has given them a great gift in terms of really feeling purposeful mm -hmm. and, um, and being an advocate for this disease and, and kind of leading a charge to something that's needless to say, um, near and dear to their hearts. And so that's kind of, that's kind of cool to see. What about genetic risk? Why don't we, we wrap up with that? Um, I, I know, again, I hear from a lot of families that say, well, they didn't call it that. They called it hardening of the arteries or they called it this, that, or the other thing um, years ago. But when I look back and think about symptoms, they all seem pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So hardening of the arteries is a bit of a cop-out diagnosis that used to be how we thought, you know, about dementia. And you get old and your your pipes get rusty and that's what you get. So it's true that as we get older, we get some cerebrovascular disease, some atherosclerosis, but vascular dementia is not actually the main dementia. It's it's Alzheimer's disease. And what is the genetic contribution? Well, it is considerable and we can divide it into two buckets to try and be clear. There are rare gene mutations. And we talked about still Alice and Alice Howell, and she inherited a rare gene mutation that directly causes Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, about 1% of the 50 million people in the world with Alzheimer's disease have their Alzheimer's disease due to one of these rare gene mutations. So for those families, you know, if you've got two or more close family members with Alzheimer's disease or a family member with a young age of onset of Alzheimer's, let's say in their 50s or 45, it might be worth having, if you're interested, genetic testing to look for those rare gene mutations. So that's one, one bucket. For most of us, if we develop Alzheimer's, it's not based on a gene mutation, but it's, a, it's based on a combination of some risk genes and perhaps some environmental factors, lifestyle strategies, lifestyle factors. But as far as the risk genes, there are about two dozen of these known. Neither of, none of them are powerful enough to by themselves cause the disease, but cumulatively, or if they're a high risk gene, uh, you know, of high penetrance, then um, they can actually contribute substantially to the developing of Alzheimer's. And the APOE gene is the one that um, your audience and, and you know, we may have, have discussed or heard about. And APOE is not a gene mutation. It comes in three types, APOE, 2, 3, and 4. And they're all normal gene variants. You could think of them as blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes. But it's the APOE4 type of APOE that confers a higher risk. And if you inherit one copy of APOE4, your risk of Alzheimer's disease is threefold greater than the general population. If you inherit two copies of APOE4, one for mom, one from dad, and they're both E4, then you have a tenfold higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. Still not everybody with two copies will, but people may want to be monitored. They may want to have a baseline cognitive test. They may want to be followed in a memory clinic annually or in a clinical trial. And there are actually some trials now looking at people in this high risk group 
and trying to apply interventions in the hope that we can slow the disease or make the ApoE4 act more like an ApoE2. So it, there's a lot of information that comes out with genetic testing and, and people, to my experience, are very interested in knowing. We're all at risk for certain things, we just don't know it. <laughs> and here it's an opportunity to, with a simple blood test or a cheek swab for the ApoE testing, to, to get some answers about our risks. Do you recommend that they have counseling if they're gonna go and do the, the DNA genetic testing? I think it's a good idea. I know that people can go direct to consumer testing like 23andMe. The disadvantage of that is you get a result back, but you don't, you don't get the information that might then carry you through as to what next. Um, and um, so in, in our memory clinic, I as a neurologist do that counseling in other memory clinics, uh, it might be that a genetic counselor um, would be involved. But I think that you need somebody who can clarify not just what it means for you, but genetic testing gives uh, information across generations. So if I have two copies of ApoE4, that means each of my children have, you know, a, a 50% chance of getting, uh, sorry, they, if I have two copies of ApoE4, each of my children will have at least one copy. Um, I don't know what copy they'll get from their father, but we know for them. So there's information that crosses generations and people often want to know that. Anything else you wanted to add, Dr. Cohen? This has just been a wonderful conversation. We've covered so much, thanks to you, Laurie, and, and everything from what children can bring, the joy and, and curiosity and innovation they can bring to living with with uh, dementia in the family and, and why we should be proactive, look after our brains and, and seek advice when memory's failing. I, I just think all these things are so important. Thank you so much for bringing them up. Oh, well, thank you. Valine, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I just wanted to encourage parents who may have young children um, or the parents who have older parents who are living with dementia, uh, that they can start the conversations early, that mm -hmm. it's so important to be open and honest with their children and, and talking to them to help them also understand the changes that they may see with a loved one. And uh, it's okay to encourage them to continue to have those conversations with their grandparents, engage, as we mentioned earlier, play together, um, talk about old, wonderful memories together. Uh, grandparents would definitely love to still have that time with their grandchildren as well. Oh, for sure. I know that was really important for my mom. You know, my daughter was, um, well, my mom, my daughter's only known her grandma with dementia and she still wanted to babysit her because that was her role. My husband and I were like really nervous about how do we do this? Because we didn't want to take that joy and that pride away from her. And we decided, okay, they, they can be together for a couple of hours and they'll just, they would color together mm -hmm. and I would, I would bring food. And so I didn't have to worry about cooking or anything, but literally I would come in the door and they'd be at the dining room table and they would both hold up their projects. And you couldn't tell who was prouder, my three-year-old or my mother. I love um, that. They were just so in sync and they always had this like super, super special bond. And so think people how to, how to make it work because those are such valuable, valuable moments to all of us because it's not, it's not just for the person with dementia, but it's for the child 
it was, it was for me, the daughter to be able to see that bond and that joy was just a gift I'll never, ever forget. And so sometimes I think we get overly paranoid with situations, but again, you know, this can be serious. You don't want somebody driving, um, you know, or maybe cooking and causing a fire. I mean, all of those things are valid and have to be looked into, but there are ways to adapt, you know, to keep everybody, everyone safe. I do want to give people contact information. So Valine Campbell, you can go to her website, which is very simple, valinecampbell.com. And her email is, I love this, hello at valinecampbell.com. So you can tell just by her personality how welcoming she is. And then on social media, she is Valine Campbell and then an underscore at the end there. And for Dr. Sharon Cohen, who is with the Toronto Memory uh, Program, you can email her at research at memorydisorders.ca. And their phone number there is 416-386-9606. And ladies, thank you for um, sharing your time and your knowledge and your compassion. I I love what you're both doing. One last question that I have, and and Valine, I'm going to um, point this to you first. We talked about the um, the underserved populations that are out there. If someone is listening to this and they want to get connected, who should they reach out to? The organizations that are currently in place are a fantastic place to start. And that is Alzheimer's Society or Alzheimer's Association. Uh, The conversations are starting about the importance for diversity and inclusion. And that means you, that means marginalized uh, communities, that means someone who looks like me. So uh, there are counselors ready to start uh, the conversations with you to offer support. And um, someone like Dr. Dr. Cohen, who has clinical trials open and available, the education needs to happen. So uh, we, we, and we have to start with you. We have to be participants of mm-hmm. the healthcare system as well in all aspects. So uh, those are, that's a great place to start. Great. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cohen, anything you want to add to that? I do think that uh, Valina is right, that the Alzheimer's Society as an advocacy group and with multiple local chapters is an approachable place to start and they will help direct uh, people to where they can get a diagnosis and, and stop spinning their wheels and trying to get the family doctor's attention if that's not happening. Uh, so I, I, I do think we should use what's in place already. And um, unfortunately, you know, physicians don't always refer to the Alzheimer's Society, don't realize that that's such a great resource for education and, and uh, moving forward with diagnosis and services. So I, I do think that's a good place to start. Yeah. And the Alzheimer's Association here does have like a 1-800 hotline that has professionals um, that can kind of guide you through, you know, whatever it is you're, you're dealing with. Two other things that I would just mention. One is um, Us Against Alzheimer's which has some great groups in terms of from vets to African-Americans to women's groups to all different types, uh, youth groups and things, you know, if you're looking at trying to participate or, and or get educated. And then I know the Alzheimer's Association, a, f- a friend of mine, um, Michelle, and you can go ahead and reach out to me because I don't have the exact information, but if you're looking for 
Um, and this is primarily for African-Americans, but they have a faith group. You know, there's no, there's no end to what we can, what we can serve up, but we need to hear from people to know what the needs are. Yeah. And there's a lot of people willing and ready to help create whatever the needs um, are, but we don't always know them. And I, I think sometimes that's where the distrust comes from is we think we know them and then we get out there and pitch and they're like, oh, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. You know, that's not going to work for us. So we want you to be part. We want everyone to, to feel at home and comfortable and that their voice is heard. Valine, I forgot to ask you, where do people purchase the book? Yeah, sure. Uh, the book is available through any large bookstore retailer. If you're in the U.S., Barnes and Nobles, you can order it through there or your even favorite neighborhood bookstore. For Canadians who are listening, it's available at Indigo and again, your favorite indie bookstores as well. So again, ladies, thank you so much for what you do. There are a lot of resources, many more than people actually know because it's just hard to find. So feel free to check out um, Dementia Map as well. We're just growing that slowly, but there's, there's lots of good information um, on there as well. So have a wonderful holiday season. We are in the thick of things now, and I can't wait to talk to, with both of you in the future and see what you're up to little bit later because I don't see either of you staying put. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a beautiful yeah. holiday. Thank yep. you for the opportunity and uh, great to see you again. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. And listeners, um, like, click and share. Don't keep this conversation a secret. You know, that is a really simple thing that, that everyone can do to help promote advocacy is share the knowledge that you've learned. Don't keep it a secret. Too many people need this type of information. So thank you. Bye now. Well, I'm so glad that we uh, that we caught that because that's an important thing. The book looks absolutely lovely and I wish you all the success in the world with it. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.